This is an ABC podcast. Still plenty of reflections on what was a wonderful test series between Australia and India and all of the fallout from that and uh, more than a few people gunning for different individuals within the Australian test setup. The Big Bash League at the moment is just ramping up. We're about to hit the final stage and almost every team, well, really every team other than the Melbourne Renegades in contention to play in the finals. Has it been a success, the BBL this season? Have you liked the innovations, the changes to the rules that have been made this year? What about the future of some of the players in the competition at the moment? Can they press up to higher honours with the T20 series ahead against New Zealand and also the Test Series being on at the same time. There's a lot to go through. I'm Alistair Nicholson. I kind of feel a bit like uh, Ajinka Rahane today, stepping in from the usual steerer of this conversation, Corbin Middlemass, who's on holiday. And I hope I do as good a job as Ajinka in the absence of Virat Kohli, who certainly did a wonderful job captaining India. Ed Cowan is here as always. Eddie, it's wonderful to see and speak to you. We didn't get to do any cricket together this summer, so I was bitterly disappointed. That's why I put my hand up to come and have a chat today. Welcome. Pal, what a treat to have you on the ABC Cricket Podcast. The, you know, the, the voice of summer minus Jim Maxwell. Well <laughs> steered all through for the ABC, mate. You are Mr. Everywhere. Everyone thought it used to be Eddie Maguire. It's now you. You pop up on the ABC. You're popping up on Channel 7. And particularly with this fun new haircut you're sporting. You know, I don't know if television <laughs> is, is made for you. This is not what I told this podcast was about. And I thought this was a nice, relaxed conversation between <laughs> two mates about cricket. You know, had a lighthearted feel to it. And you've come straight out of the blocks and you right between the eyes. All of what you said is completely valid as well. I'm very ubiquitous over the summer, Ed, um, but I've enjoyed it. It's been a good summer and unfortunately not enough cricket was played in Melbourne. We missed the WBBL. Uh, we didn't really have any international matches other than the, the Boxing Day test. So it's been lovely to do some cricket at all, to be honest with you. I'm sure. Have you, have you been out to the last, there's a bit of a, a cricket fest going on at the moment in Melbourne. And one thing I actually don't understand, but interesting your thoughts maybe off the top. Why, if... We've got such a cricket fest in Melbourne. Would we have so many games at Marvel Stadium where the wicket is definitely the worst going around in the country? They would have, I thought they might have spread it around a little bit more. The, I mean, even the MCG can handle a bit more traffic than, than what it's getting. Yeah, and I'm not a fan of the stadium, to be honest. Um, even for football, Ed, there's, a, there's something about it. It's going to get a, a revamp uh, in time. And there's money there to do that, but it doesn't bring the atmosphere of the MCG. That's another element that makes Marvel Stadium um, not the equal of the MCG in any way. But the outfield's not particularly good. They've had a lot of issues with that, and the pitch isn't conducive to, to mm. high scoring, which is what people want to see in the Big Bash League, isn't it? And the MCG is playing, uh, is hosting some double headers at the moment. Um, I think uh, as we speak, um, tomorrow the match between the, the Melbourne Renegades and the Hobart Hurricanes is being played at the MCG rather than. Marvel, which would typically be the, the home ground of, um, of the Renegades. But it is one of those things, isn't it, that they spread the games around in a typical BBL season at various venues. They might go down to Geelong. We've seen games in Coffs Harbour and Alice Springs and all over the place, which I, I totally support. I think it's fantastic to take those games into to regional areas if possible, but it does rely on the quality of, of pitches and outfields to ensure that the integrity of the competition and the standard of the competition maintains um, the same level that you would see at those first-class grounds. 
should, should we stick to the big bash while we're, while we're rolling? That was that's uh, an interesting little segue into. I know that you're quite enamoured with this big boost bash point for the halfway like mark, Al. I think now's a good time. You know, we're we're down to the final round. We've got a very clogged leaderboard. I'm keen to hear your bull case on this bonus point at the ten over mark because yeah. I'm happy to argue the negative. All right. Well. My theory around this, and I'll lay it on the table to start with, is that I am the ultimate cricket conservative. I don't want cricket. I don't, in fact, I'm the sport conservative. I don't want the game messed with. I don't want um, tiebreakers to decide sets at Grand Slam tennis tournaments. I want Mahu and Isner and the history and the fact that we still talk about for how long they played. So I don't like it when the game's meddled with. I don't like AFL being meddled with, and I don't like cricket being meddled with. But... T20 cricket probably is the form of the game where you can, and it already is uh, in itself a very different form of the game. So to make some modifications to it, initially I thought they were a bit naff and I wondered how they would be received and how they would work. But I think the big bash uh, boost point has actually added an element to the competition in that the points at the end of the season are now quite critical in determining where teams sit on the ladder. And it's also a clearer way, I think, to a fan than the traditional net run rate to split teams. So if you've got a team that's got more bash boost points, yes, then they're higher on the table. Whereas you speak to the average Joe, they wouldn't be able to calculate net run rate other than they'd know that it meant that you didn't do particularly well in the games that you lost and may have done well in the games that you'd won. And it adds another element. So the classic case was the match between the Thunder and the Strikers where the Thunder are seemingly cruising along at one for 73 and uh, they're chasing a target of 160 to win the game. They need 12 off the 10th over to claim that one bonus point, which becomes more critical at the back end of the season, and they go for it, and they lose a couple of wickets. So it's got the capacity to change the momentum in games, and I think sport is often at its best when there are fluctuations in momentum. So as much as I was a bit of a a conservative um, and unsure about it, circumspect to see these things come in at the start, I actually think that one's worked. Probably a fair bit better than the X Factor, to be honest. I don't think the X Factor player has really been a much of an element. It hasn't added too much to the competition other than the odd occasion where someone comes in like a Chris Lynn when he was injured and does something quite spectacular. But apart from that, I'm not sure it's really fulfilled, um, fulfilled the role it was meant to play. But the bash boost point, I'm happy to admit, Ed, from a very um, sceptical base, I'm a supporter of that going forward. It's a pretty good bull thesis to you, you put forward. The things that come to mind to argue the other case, and and people that listen to this know that I, I love the Big Bash, I love innovation, but what frustrated me specifically with, with the, the boost point and the X factor, less so uh, the change to the power play because that has been tested across various forms of cricket over, over many years, was just the lack of data around how it would create incentives. And what I what I haven't loved there are, there are two big things for me and that is one the the blowout wins and the argument was oh, I'll keep people interested for longer because at the halfway point there's a there's a point up for grabs the blowout wins have actually been bigger yeah, the three biggest margin victories for the entire history of the Big Bash have all come this season so that that for me signals that it isn't quite doing its job in, in that sense. And you could take the other side of the coin and say, well, they were going to be a blowout victory and this just accelerated and, you know, people could, could get on with their lives a bit quicker and you don't get that slow drawn out factor. And the other one is like the really perverse incentive when the, the, the strikers were playing the scorchers 
Scorch has got a good total. Adelaide got the big bash boost point and lost the game by 120 runs. And that, to me, as a someone who is competitive and and you know you play to win, makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. That a team can walk having been hammered, not just beaten, comprehensively beaten in all facets of the game, and they walk away with a point. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah. So I, I think maybe what what has happened, and I'm thinking kind of real time, is the close games have got more interesting. And the weaker games have got worse. Which is and a problem. And what that says to me is that a little bit of a problem. And the way for the the weaker games to get better is to have better players playing in the competition. No doubt that there have been some good overseas players as well in this year's competition. And they have added some value to the general spectacle. We're not the the crowd pleasers and the generational players like the Petersons and the Gales and the De Villiers that really make the Big Bash a special competition. It elevates it above every other T20 competition. And, you know, I love the Big Bash. I love cricket on the TV. The more, the merrier. Um, but it, it, it's probably not until these last, I don't know, three weeks and now the test players are back that it really feels like it's accelerating to what should be a wonderful finale. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And if you're going to get international talent in, Yes, a Rashid Khan. Yes, an A.B. de Villiers, as you say, a a Chris Gale, that type of player. They bring that level of prestige and um, excitement around them that it's well worth it. I don't think you should just... You're not obligated to go out and get international talent to play in the Big Bash League purely on a speculative basis as well. I think the Hobart Hurricanes, for example, would probably be questioning their decision to go with Will Jacks based on fairly minimal... um, at any level of the game that suggested he was going to be an international star in the competition. Um, But I would say also that the return of the Australian players is fantastic and it gives the competition a real boost. Unfortunately, the likes of David Warner elect not to play in it. But there is also that element that the test player should play within the lineup in the position, you know, in in a top order position sometimes. So, I was watching a game recently where it was the first Marnus Labuschagne played for the Brisbane Heat coming out of the test squad. And I felt like the Heat picked him to open the batting on the basis of um, his international experience, his pedigree in, in international cricket, rather than whether he was the best man to perform that role at the top of the order. To me, yes, they wanted to get him out there and show immediately that Marnus was back from the tests and this was a great thing for the Heat to have him available to them. It felt to me like it cost them the game in a way. They didn't necessarily lose because of it and they were chasing a decent target. But it felt to me like if you'd had Max Bryant and Chris Lynn at the top of the order to, to really go after the bowling, Marnus is, I think he left his first ball. So there was going to be an adjustment to, to get used to playing white ball cricket again, which can't be easy when you've been playing test match cricket for so long. So I think that they need to, and this there's a discussion to be had later on about who Australia should pick when it comes to the T20 international side. To me, yes, there are players with a high profile who will get picked to play in, in the Australian T20 team when it doesn't clash with the Test series. But there are also some pretty good horse-for-course players within the Big Bash League who deserve an opportunity as well. Yeah, there's no doubt that the big bash benefits from, from the domestic stars and it lends itself to the conversation about the scheduling and should there ever be international cricket after 
the Sydney test and, and to have, to know every single big bash that there are three weeks of your domestic stars that are going to play. I'm keen to hear what your T20 Australian side is, both to New Zealand and, and potentially for, for a T20 World Cup coming up out because... You know, Aaron Finch, the captain of the T20 side, a wonderful player. We know that. Horribly out of form. Can't buy a run. And, and luck has gone against him, no doubt. His team's losing. He's probably feeling the pressure. I don't know if we're seeing the best of him at the later stages of his career. I know he's playing well in one-day cricket. But is it time for that, that fearless Josh Felipe, regardless of whether Finch and Warner are available to, to maybe open. And I'm keen on, on your views. and I'll give mine after that. Yeah, that's a good point, Ed. And it almost follows on from, from what I was talking about previously with the international players. So it's just assumed that David Warner will open the batting for Australia in, in limited overs cricket based on the runs he's piled up previously, based on his, his decorated record in the game. But I do think there comes a point where you have to look at who's performing in the current climate. And to me, Josh Phillippe is an automatic selection to open the batting for Australia in T20 international cricket. Does he have the experience of other players? No. Does he have talent? Yes. Has he piled up runs in the big bash league? Yes. Should that be a, you know, a breeding ground for international players? I think it should be. I think Australian domestic players should be using that tournament as, as a stepping stone to higher honours. So to me, if Matthew Wade didn't go on the test tour, um, and I'm not sure whether he will or whether he won't, uh, then I would think that, you know, maybe a, a Philippi and a Wade or a Darcy Short and a Josh Philippi at the top of the order would be a really good option. Now, the Australian selectors aren't really going to be in the position where they have to make that tough call on someone like Warner at the moment because you know he's going to be picked to go to South Africa should they go. But in a situation where there aren't limited overs and test series clashing, then, then that does become a, a decision that they're going to have to make. I agree with you around Aaron Finch. It's hard, though, isn't it, because he's the captain. But he is, yes, he can bat in the middle order potentially, but he really is an opening bat, isn't he? So he needs to be making runs to be picked, and I'm, I'm not sure that he is making runs at the moment when there are a host of others in the competition who are. So I want to see Ben McDermott playing for Australia. I want to see Jai Richardson certainly in the team if he's not on the test tour, and, and we might talk about that a little later on, how he's managed back into the Australian setup, but... I want to see young players who are doing well. You could even make a case for a Wes Agar, who in successive seasons has now taken a stack of wickets and he's sort of come from nowhere. But you have to stand and, and take notice and um, you have to you know, give him his dues for, for consistent performances. It was sort of what the Sheffield Shield used to be um, when players like yourself were, were bashing down the, the door with with a lot of runs to get your opportunity to play test match cricket. I, I don't think just because it's more of a gimmicky tournament and, a, and an entertainment product that, that that should not be treated similarly, the big bash league when it comes to picking the national side. What do you reckon? No, without doubt. And I think there's now a greater focus uh, on big bash form. There, there is a counter thought though, that as the big bash quality as a, as a tournament has diminished the step up to international cricket, has been greater. And so when Darcy Short has been given his opportunity at the top of the order, opening the batting for Australian T20, it's been almost too big a leap for him. He doesn't get that loose ball and over. They know uh, that the weakness against spin and you're facing the best spinner from a country, not the eighth best spinner in the Big Bash League 
to exploit that weakness. And so that step up, you know, has probably taken some time to adjust. So if it's hard for him, who's dominated the Big Bash League, how is Ben McDermott going to do? We've seen him struggle at the international level. So I think actually the perfect scenario is this T20 tour can't come soon enough because they can almost pick a upcoming 11 with Warner and, and Smith and, and Manus in South Africa. It's a great opportunity to let these guys gauge themselves against a fantastic white ball team in New Zealand where traditionally oh, they've done well in the big, big bash, let's pick them, and they've actually struggled to make an impact. Yeah, it's a good point, and we've seen that even. Do you think that applies to the Sheffield Shield a little bit too because I thought it was interesting that prior to the test series against India, we had batsmen in form, and we haven't typically had that um, in Sheffield Shield cricket. You had Travis Head making stacks of runs. You had Matthew Wade making some runs as well. Joe Burns, fair enough, he missed out. But Pukowski and others and Harris were piling up runs in the Sheffield Shield in those matches prior to the Test Series. And yet when the Test Series rolled around, they weren't able to, to score at the same rate to the point where someone like a Travis Head lost his place in the side. Hmm. I think that that was partly due to the bubble Sheffield Shield playing on on club wickets essentially in Adelaide, and so I think it, it suited you know players that that could really at, attack. Uh, there, was, there was nothing in those wickets, absolutely nothing. And in Travis's case, he was very second innings uh, heavy when it came to his yeah, he scoring. He, he didn't win many games. You know, South Australia were. were were being resold left, right, and centre, but he saved a couple of games, and, and people say runs are runs. But you're right, the player, the standout player was Pekovsky. He got his go. He looked at at ease um, in, in Test cricket, and then unfortunately the the shoulder injury that that kept him out of that fourth Test. People forget you only ever need one or two batsmen knocking on the door. You don't need ten. You can't fit 10 new batsmen into a test lineup mm. when Smith and Labuschagne and Warner are taking up spots. So for me, it feels as though Cameron Green now deserves a run. And whether it's it's head back in or you give another young batsman a go, I think Matthew Wade is is struggling to to make the the flight to South Africa, which is a shame because he is a fine batsman, but at the end of the day, you're judged on on the runs you get in test cricket. And uh, I think after 36 tests, unfortunately, averaging 29 is is not going to cut the mustard. Mm, I wonder whether his performances in England during the last Ashes series and uh, will carry a little bit of weight for him ahead of a tour where you know the ball might do a little bit. And also, the Australian setup at the moment does tend to value highly that team player. So the person prepared to sacrifice mm. their own game, um, as we saw with Wade, to go up and fill a role at the top yeah. of the order. I just wonder that whether that will give him some credits in the bank that almost override, in a way, his lack of output during the series, in a series where, where not many of the batsmen really fired from an Australian perspective. And, and overall, there were only a few batsmen in the series who, who did perform well, I think, across the board. Um, the totals made by either side were probably not at the level that we might have expected. So I do fear for his position within the team, Matty Wade, at the moment, but I do also think that he is a chance to get picked as that sort of experienced player who's been on overseas tours before. 
Uh, I still think he's a chance to get picked in that side, but it, it will be interesting. I, Interested in your take on on David Warner. So to me, it feels like this South African series, should it go ahead, another series overseas where Warner hasn't particularly done well. He hasn't done very well in India. He hasn't done well in the last Ashes series in, in England. Um, he's, he's mounted up um, massive or, or made massive scores in Australian conditions, but wasn't able to do that this summer as well. I, to me, it feels like this is quite a significant series for him and if he can't perform in South Africa should it go ahead then at his age his position in the team I think will come under some scrutiny it's it's one that slipped under the radar you're right Al uh, and not to forget the, the 300 last summer really inflated his numbers after an Ashes series where he couldn't buy a run he obviously wasn't fully fit and so I think that the test will be a fully fit David Warner, and you're assumed, of course, if you're playing to, to be contributing. But there's no doubt. We saw it with all the great batsmen. We saw it with with Ponting. You get to a certain number of volume of runs or a certain age, and once you tip, your best days are still good enough, but you just don't have the consistency to, to last at the absolute top of your game in, in test cricket. So I think you're right. I, I think, and, and not many people have kind of raised this, this could be a massive series for for how Dave Warner's the last chapter of his career. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I suppose um, the thing in his favour is that there aren't numerous mm. opening batting options for Australia at the moment, it would appear. Marcus Harris sort of came in as not the first choice. So you've gone Burns, Bukowski, then Harris gets his chance to partner David Warner at the top of the order. Cameron Bancroft's done it in the not-too-distant past as well. So... Few people have been given a go and no one's really been able to seize that opportunity. And there doesn't appear to be anyone in, in shield cricket at the moment who's producing weight of runs to suggest that they could dislodge a player like David Warner as well. So I guess that's the challenge um, for those underneath at the moment, but they could see that as a decent opportunity for anyone opening the batting in Sheffield shield cricket at the moment, that there could be positions available in the in the near future. Jai Richardson, um, been so impressed with the way he's bowled in the Big Bash League this season on his return from injury. And obviously there's still a question mark around whether he can get through first-class cricket. I don't think he's played a first-class cricket match in 14 months or so due to his his shoulder issues. He's had to have a couple of operations on that shoulder and and the first of those um, emanating from that injury sustained in the UAE against Pakistan in a one-dayer. And that was when he was on the cusp of playing in a World Cup or maybe playing in an Ashes series. He's got that little taste of Test cricket behind him as well. Interested to, to hear your thoughts, Ed, because to me, he looks like he could play a lot of Test cricket for Australia. He's so disciplined the way he bowls. He moves the ball um, both ways and he bowls at 140 plus kilometres an hour. So what's the approach to Jai Richardson, particularly when we have these two tours on the horizon one is a red ball tour to south africa and and that limited overs tour to to new zealand what's the best way of assimilating him back into the international setup do you reckon it's a it's a a question on on everyone's lips and you know there's nothing to dislike about joe richardson's cricket as you you perfectly described it pace swing hunger uh you know matching ability with with talent and there's there's a little bit about him. You see it in his eye that he, he likes seeing the ball fly around. There's a little bit of mongrel in him as well. So my view on this is, and I, and I don't like the extrapolation of T20 form to, to test cricket form, 
But there are the rare occasions, and we saw it when, when Pat Cummins came back from injury. There are these special cricketers that you, at every opportunity, try and get the most out of them. And the most out of Jai Richardson is to take him on the test tour. He has to be on that plane. He has to be around Hazelwood. He has to be around Cummins and Stark and, and these guys and, and learning the trade from the absolute best. And if he gets an opportunity, fantastic, and he may well. Uh, but, you know, the, the question mark will be his fitness, but he only needs to play one test in a, in a series like that. And, and what Australia didn't do in this last series, that they did so well in England, was that horses for courses rotate your fast bowlers, know that you need five or six humming fast bowlers to win a big series. They've played four test matches and had the same attack, um, mainly you know, around the fact that oh, Cameron Green's bowling some some overs as the all-rounder, but I think they missed a trick in, in, in that opportunity to, to actually hunt as a pack as a fast bowling group. And Richardson now provides that. He provides something different, the skid, the swing, uh, so, uh, you know, I'd love to see on, on that tour and, and, you know, maybe Jimmy Pattinson or you know, Nessa should probably go as well. Just bowlers that are, are providing something different. And, and you mentioned Wes Agar's name to, to play in the, the one-day tour. He, he may well be a bolter for the, for the test tour as well. You see him as having the, the fundamentals of a, a good test bowler? Well, I'm not saying – I think it, it would be a bit of a cue jump. Yeah, in my mind, ahead of a Jackson Bird, ahead of a Jimmy Pattinson, you know, Sean Abbott. There are guys ahead of him, but there are, there's something to like about a six foot five uh, bowler that gets bounced at 140 k's an hour and can move the ball. So whether it's this year, it probably won't be. Um, but there's nothing to say that he can't play Test cricket, you know, in the medium term. And and while you do have those fit other fast bowlers around the group, it might be time to to get someone like that in. I like that you've mentioned Jackson Bird there because I don't reckon Jackson Bird's really on the test radar too much at the moment, but he is a bowler in shield cricket who year after year mm. asks questions time and time again of batsmen. He gets rewarded with wickets. His economy is superb. He bowls a lot of overs. He might not bowl with the express pace of some of the other Australian bowlers at the moment, but we've seen what a Trent Copeland's done in the Sheffield Shield this season. You, you don't need to be lightning fast to be a very effective test match bowler. Um, you go back to McGrath and even, you know, Stuart Clark, those types of bowlers. I, I still think there is a role for that type of bowler in test match cricket. What do you reckon? Oh, there's... There's no doubt. You, you see the success of a Vernon Philander over a long period of time, Jimmy Anderson. I'm not comparing Jackson Bird to Jimmy Anderson, but the point still stands, particularly when you have other people who, who bring the heat. Sometimes the last thing you want is for four fast bowlers to be bowling 145 because a, a batsman gets his rhythm. Sometimes as a batsman, it, it can be really hard for that change of pace. Someone bowling at 135, someone bowling at 150, someone swinging it you know, away from you, someone bowling seam. That can break your rhythm as a batsman. It felt at times, it was almost the Australians were a little bit predictable against India just in terms of the type of bowling. It was fast. It came from a great height. It was excellent fast bowling but it allowed batsmen to, once they would get in, there was nothing to, to, to mix it up. And, and, you know, you see that the whole time in, in cricket, 
uh, you know, often it's not the the guy who's bowling uh, the best or the fastest or moving the ball the most. It's that split moment of concentration loss because someone's only bowling 120 k's an hour. Or but if it, if it's coming at you the whole the whole time at the same speed, you can really find your your rhythm and your zone. So I think someone like a Jackson Bird provides that. You talked about Jimmy Anderson there, and there are a couple of elements to discuss around his recent performance in Sri Lanka, but you're talking about rotating bowlers, horses for courses as well. Well, England is doing that in the tour against Sri Lanka at the moment. So Stuart Broad playing in the first test, Jimmy Anderson coming in for the second. So not playing together in anymore, um, but being fresh and coming and playing a role. And Jimmy Anderson at the age of 38 has picked up six wickets in the first innings of that match. So 30th five-wicket haul in test match cricket, over 600 uh, test match wickets to his name. He'll be 39 when the Ashes series rolls around in Australia next summer. So do you see him there? Do you see him being a strike weapon for for England during that next Ashes series? Yeah, well, there might be a situation where he plays at the Gabba and he plays at the Wacker and they use him in a really intelligent manner. They say, don't worry about Melbourne and Sydney. We're going to try and get 15 poles out of you in two test matches and you need to have the depth and, and the England fast bowling unit probably do have the depth, not the skill of an Anderson and Broad, you know, over a thousand test wickets between them now. So he'll be here. It's how they use him. He's not going to be that strike bowler for five test matches that they've relied on for, for so long, but I can see that playing out in terms of where does it swing? We'll play him there. Where's there's a bit of pace and bounce and, and his Knicks are going to carry. So oh man, what an effort to, to be bowling in test cricket at that pace with that skill for so long. It's just a testament to Jimmy Anderson as a person, as a cricketer and, and you know, 600 test wickets. It's, it's something that will go down in the, in the record books for, for a long time in terms of English uh, swing bowlers. How much opportunity did you get to face, Jimmy, and, and what what did you find difficult about his bowling as a batsman? Obviously, I, I didn't uh, only played one test match against him. But I played quite a bit of county cricket against him over the years, uh, you know, coming through uh, obviously the, the same age. And so I, I saw him quite a bit uh, over the years. He, he used to have a quite a, a nice affection with my front pad, uh, the, the in-swinger used to bowl a couple of across and dart one down the line and it was as though there was a magnet. But he, I mean, he wasn't the only one that had an affection with that pad. Uh, but just a, a wonderful bowl. When I, when I faced him, what stood out was his ability to swing the ball big. You talk about guys who, who can move the ball, but quantum and quality and that being how late he swung it. And so he could he could move the ball both ways across the left hand across and then still bring the ball down the line at, at decent clip. So he was a tough customer, but just a a, a wonderful cricketer. And uh, you know that combination with Broad will will be something that's talked about, as I said, for for many years to come. Unbelievable uh, that Test series. I mean, I already can't wait for it, but. I have been thinking lately, and I want to get your thoughts on it as well. To me, the Australia-India rivalry is, you know, the Australia-England rivalry has been there for so, so long, and we look forward immensely to every Ashes series. But the India-Australia series, to me now, now that India is capable of being a strong side away from um, the subcontinent, it's almost starting to rival that. And, and I wonder whether they're almost, they look like India could be headed for a, 
a West Indies of our childhood like dominance of, of test match cricket, which I think will make it even more appealing. Because to me, some of the best test match cricket as an Australian fan watching is when we're actually under the pump. We're, we're fighting yeah. really hard against great opposition. And, and for us, the achievement of winning like Border in, in 89 with his team that, that toured over there and the, the Indian tour of 04, the triumph in that and, and the level of engagement you have with it, to me, that's the very best test match cricket to watch. The problem I have with getting too excited about the India-Australia contest is the chance of us winning in India uh, are diminishing by, by the year. We weren't so too bad last might, time. We at least got them down to Durham, Charlotte, but they're tough. It might be 50 years before we win another series over there. Uh, I think our best window is probably the next one with a, a Lion and a Swepson. Uh, you know, it's, it's bloody hard to win a test match over there. In particular, I think the, this Australian lineup, aside from Smith and and Labuschagne, are probably are poor against spin. We, you know, we've seen Ravi Ashwin really struggle in Australia in the past. He looked like a genius. He's obviously improving, and he's a wonderful world class bowler. But he he really, you know, controlled the the test matches for India. And he was a bit of an unsung hero. We talked about the Sirajas and, and the Boomers. Uh, we didn't talk much about Ashwin, but he not only took some massive wickets, but he he, he controlled the scoreboard. Mm. And you need a spinner in Australia to do that. When England won, it was Graham Swan. That's probably why I think England will struggle next year, regardless of Anderson and Broad and these fast bowlers that they do have. You know, Bess and Jack Leach. You know, Dom Bess and Jack Leach are serviceable finger spinners. I don't think they'll they'll have the same ability to create that pressure that Ashwin did. And then all of a sudden for Australia to go to India and you've got Ashwin and, and obviously brings in Dadeja, his left arm, you know, left arm spin, plus you name a, a long list of 50 spinners that, you know, Australia would die to have in, in those conditions. And, uh, you know, it, it is a, a wonderful contest, but uh, it's great that Australia... And India are strong. I still think Test cricket to thrive needs you know, nine, ten strong nations. And of course, we can't forget that New Zealand are currently the number one Test playing nation, so they're strong. South Africa, unfortunately, have fallen off a cliff with everything that's going on over there. Sri Lanka have fallen off a cliff. The country that you know could rise from the ashes in the next twenty years is is probably Afghanistan with their spinners. They look unbelievable, mm. don't they? And that's what we want, some of those emerging nations becoming fully-fledged top-level test nations um, because you do want an even competition and you want a situation where you don't only have the best trying to play the best in the significant series, so not these tokenistic one-match series against Afghanistan or two matches against Bangladesh. You want, you want those nations being strong enough that it warrants a, a you know, a four-test series or a five-test series, um, something a bit more meaningful and, and meaty, I reckon. Ed, love chatting cricket with you. It's been so much fun. Unfortunately, we're not afforded a bit more time for the podcast. I'm used to doing days of test cricket with you, so we can chat for about six or seven hours, um, and there's plenty to chat about in the world of cricket at the moment. But before we depart, any listener contributions you wanted to bring to the table this week? I had a text message from a listener, actually, uh, a friend of mine, Chris, who, who listens to the podcast, was re-watching the, the test on Amazon and wanted to know our thoughts on on support staff around the Australian team and 
you know, watching the, the test, as, as I said, it, there was a cast of thousands and he, he was just curious as to, particularly in COVID times, how, how this is is tracking and my general views on, on support staff and, and whether we want to go down this track and, and whether we have time or not, I'm happy to give a, a quick view. The short answer being, obviously, the, the COVID cutbacks have happened across all sports just from a cost-saving perspective. And so the Australians are no longer travelling with this you know, full suite of coaches. And I actually don't mind it, Al. Um, and I'm sure you know, you're close to the AFL who have had similar cost-cutting exercises, but it forces the players to become their best version of themselves and not only coach themselves, but coach each other. And that's how you build trust in the relationship when you're batting out in the middle. If you've been working on something with someone in the nets, if you've been helping out coaching and, and, and Tim Payne referenced uh, Marnus Labuschagne with, with a little bit of mm. his form turnaround with the bat this summer, sometimes the best tips are coming from the, the best players and coaches are there to facilitate the, the ideas and practice. But I actually like less coaches, I think. It's a question of, of having a consistent voice, but it's also allowing the players to, to be their own, as I said, not only coaching themselves, but coaching others around them. Which I think is a, a great thing, isn't it, in terms of team chemistry, investing in each other's games for the common good of the team, trying to get the people around you to be better, which is how I felt today, being given the honour of sharing this podcast with you, it. Eddie. It's been a treat, mate. Good to chat with you. Thanks, Al. Absolutely. We'll get the real host Crack back in the chair, well. will we? Oh, well, yeah, you know, the, have to get rid of, uh, you, you probably aren't taking bookings a week in advance. Your diary would be full with all the big bash games you're calling for <laughs> rival networks, but uh, we will. Corby will be back, no doubt. He's on a well-deserved holiday, and uh, hopefully there's, there's some more cricket topics to discuss next week. I think there definitely will be. I'm only a phone call away if you ever need me. Thanks for your time, mate. Good to chat. <laughs> Thanks, Al. It's been a pleasure. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.